Love Made Bear presents Love the Conversation. The UK's first digitally interactive talk Bear. show hosted by radio and podcast host Dion London. Do not miss out on your chance to be part of some of the most explosive debates concerning culture, life struggles and community. Our rotating panel of experts and experienced individuals will kick off the conversation with 50-50 audience interaction. Join us on the 28th of April 2019 at 4.30pm at the Croydon Park Hotel. Tickets are £15 plus booking fee and available on Eventbrite. Just search for Love Laid Bear. Be part of the conversation. Love Laid Bear. Hi, and you are through to another episode of Love Laid Bear. I am, of course, your host, Dion. Um, now, today I am joined by an extraordinary woman. Um, she goes by the name of Rachel Webb. She's an author and mother. Welcome to Love Laid Bear, Rachel. How are you? I'm good, thank you. So, um, Rachel is the author of a book called Hello Madness, Goodbye Joy. Um, and it's, um, I was going to say stories, not stories. So it's, it's a kind of, it's a, it's a factual timeline um, about the tragic murder of her son back in 2017. Um, I'll give you the details of the book um, at, the ed- at the end of this podcast. Um, now, when I when I when I read the book, um, the introduction kind of talks about Rachel's early life, um, and I was stunned about how much you'd gone through, um, you know, even before all this had happened, kind of thing. Um, could you talk to us about you know you kind of growing up and what happened? Yep. Um... I'm one of many children, so I come from a very large family, got lots of brothers and sisters. Um, I wouldn't necessarily say as a sibling group, we're all close, we're all connected. Um, we don't all share the same mums. So for okay. the for the core group that are still living, that are from my biological mother, we are now closer now, sort of connected more after Kyron's death. But prior to that, I wouldn't say we were all wasn't quite close Um, my dad was quite a strict disciplinarian and there was a lot of I would say there was a lot of aggression within my house so we there were all forms of different types of abuse that I could say that I myself personally experienced Um, you know we all have our stories about beatings but I think if I was to share my stories about beatings they're probably going to supersede the ones that you generally laugh about um, and some of the things that I remember growing up, I remember growing up, I would say with quite a significant amount of cruelty, you okay. know, to what now, I think if children were to undergo what we went through now, it would be deemed as probably child abuse oh, yeah, in, you know, in many facets. I'm quite careful about what I'm saying because I do appreciate that my other brothers and sisters, you know, certain things that I might discuss might be upsetting for them. Mm-hmm. And so I won't delve into things because it is their personalising people listening to this podcast potentially may know one of them and mm-hmm. I don't want to bring any sort of upset or embarrassment to them but what I would say is I suffered a significant amount of abuse growing up and I would and in all areas you know I've always said that I don't think there's an abuse that 
yet to be done that I don't feel I've been a victim of. Wow. You know, it's the best way I can really pull it for myself. So, do you think you understand the reason why your abuse was worse than your other siblings? I don't know if I would actually say it was worse, or I would say that some, I think that the older generation of my siblings potentially will be able to share a lot of my stories and see a lot of similarity in the way I was treated to in the way they were treated. Mm -hmm. I think for the younger ones, as it mellowed down, because what had happened is the, there was sort of two sets of siblings living together at that one point of time. So there's two different mother's children and some of us, we interlink. So I've got some brothers and sisters that are similar ages, like only a couple of months apart, things like that. Um, So what had happened is when my stepmom came and took out her children, leaving just my biological mother's children, it was a slight change and shift in dynamics. But then I would say my older brother, he'd probably have a story to tell if he ever wanted to tell a story. Mm-hmm. My sister that's immediately underneath me would have a story to tell if she ever wanted to share her story. I think after that, things started to mellow out. So for the younger, younger siblings Mm -hmm. they may not necessarily understand the life that we lived and understand our experiences because they were not their experiences and I think you find that a lot you know you'll have um children living in the same household but their personal experiences with their parents are completely different sometimes Mm. and um like I know for example like my mum um she was the eldest um, and she suffered severe abuse by her her mother, my grandmother, um, but the other kids didn't. So when my mum finally started to express after, you know, my mum's now in her 60s, when she finally started to express, you know, her feeling towards certain things, they couldn't believe it. They were yeah. like, we were there, what are you talking about? That never happened, kind of thing. Um, so that's kind of caused a bit of, you know... Family rift. Yeah, a bit yeah. of friction. You but know. that in itself is perception, misconception, isn't it? It's about impact. We can all experience and witness the exact same event, but the way that it's going to impact you to the way it impacts somebody else will be completely different. Yeah, and if they... And, and, and that's the difference, you know, is because I know that I only touched on my life in my book it was like a little touch on and I know that in that little touch I affected people in our family in very different ways mm-hmm. I had a nephew and a cousin that reached out to me and said oh my gosh when I read that introduction it was so much like me like I just thought that oh my gosh I understood it it made me cry and then it helped them to sort of delve into yeah. certain things that they'd been experiencing but for another sibling I caused great offense because it one wasn't something that she herself had experienced it wasn't something that she herself had ever seen when I was taken into care she was only just a baby like two and a half going on to three and so it was really it was a very very you know vast contrast to the life that she lived Mm -hmm. and it and it really caused you know the immediate response when I read it she sounded she seemed really angry and hurt by my story but you know, as with your mum, when you go through something, this is your personal experience, it's your personal testimony, it's what you've experienced, and nobody can take that away yeah. from you, because somebody's actions have had this impact on you, and they have then moulded and shaped your personality and your life's experience thereafter. 
you get what I mean? And if I'm the one living this life, you, who are you to tell me that it didn't happen? I know what happened to me. Yeah. And I know the reasons why I am who I am today because of the experiences that I've had to experience by the hands of other people. And you know, I, I'm not even, where, where are you from originally? Where are your family from? Um, my dad was from Nigeria. Uh-huh. Yeah. I feel like, um, especially with black culture, we have this, um, we really have a very massive issue with people speaking their truths you know we and and again this is another reason for me doing a podcast because it's like i want to kind of break that stigma of not talking your business and bringing shame on the family and all this kind of thing because 80 it's almost like 80 percent of us have had some type of trauma in our childhoods that we feel like we can't speak about because we don't want to offend people you know um my kind of thing is why should somebody else be offended by the fact that you are speaking about something that happened to you and i i remember there were points quite early on in the book where it was almost like you were having to explain yourself like you're saying you know but why shouldn't i feel like this and you know why should this person and it kind of made me angry because i was like you should not right now you shouldn't be caring about what other people kind of think but again it's like as a culture this is how we're kind of made to feel and and again like i say this is why i'm trying to break that notion um for because like i always say until you speak your truth you can't even start the process of healing that's exactly it that's exactly it and that's the thing it's like you will find that when you've got those dirty secrets or something that affects other people or may be used against you because somebody because you see the thing is is you can have a open disability somebody sees it they use it to mock you they use it to put you down Mm -hmm. and it's deemed as something negative yeah so if you know you've got an inward disability you're going to hide it you're not going to publicize it because generally you're accustomed to people seeing something about you that is slightly not fit in the mold there's not an element of perfection there so people don't want to share it people generally share success stories and good stories because that's a feel-good factor people want to hear that and it makes everybody feel good when you've got to talk the truth this is the thing you are brought up to believe that the truth is wrong yeah and so therefore if the truth is not i've won a thousand pounds on a lottery and the truth your truth is my dad raped me last night you're immediately sworn to an element of secrecy because literally what happens are you sure are you making this up are you doing this you feel you become the accused for a process and then the thing is is if you have at a younger age verbalize that truth and people don't listen you grow up with that notion of it doesn't make sense because no one's going to believe you anyway and I think that is something that I learned very earlier on because even in my younger years when I was that innocent child I didn't really understand the concept of what was happening so I didn't really understand that this treatment of me was actually wrong Mm -hmm. and it shouldn't have been happening and I shouldn't have been exposed to certain things I thought it was okay. I've got vivid memories of going to play centre and saying it to people like, you know, play workers and other people that were a lot older than me saying these things. And it was as though it was something normal. Do you understand what I'm saying? But people didn't really respond in a shocked way. They didn't act as though you shouldn't do. And at one point at school, I was actually chastised by a teacher 
for saying something and she thought that I was lying um, because she believed that she knew my family and she knew my parents and my dad was an extremely intelligent man. Um, we didn't want for nothing. I'm not going to give a story to say that we grew up in poverty or anything yeah. like that. Mm-hmm. We didn't. My house probably wasn't the nicest house on the road, but... We didn't want for anything. If it was own clothes day, my dad would give me money. We would do what have you. So as far as the school were concerned is there's nothing that you guys don't have. Every single trip, your dad pays. You're probably one of the first to pay. You get to go. Any latest clothing or fashion, we had it. Every birthday was always celebrated. You get what I mean? So... You, you try and yeah, so you try yeah. and tell them that actually this. They would tell you that one teacher hit me with a ruler across uh, my legs because she actually believed that I was making stories up and I was lying to get attention. Do you understand what I'm saying? And then after a while, because you don't, you there are certain things that you see as a child that your childhood vocabulary just cannot explain. Yes. You cannot explain it. You cannot put it into order, and you haven't had enough life's experiences to understand that there's something not right here and I need to take an action, but I can't take an action. And so by not taking an action, I'm actually then saying to the person, it's okay, keep doing this because to a, to a degree now, I be, I'm becoming a willing participant in that level of ignorance. Yes. Do you get what I mean? And then, so as you get older and you grow up, there's an element of shame that's associated to you mm-hmm. because, you know, if somebody's going to abuse you and they call you and you willingly walk towards them, then you think, well, I was a, you know, passive recipient yes. to this form of abuse because I was now participating. Yeah. You know, I knew exactly what you were calling me for. I knew exactly what you were going to do, but I've come mm-hmm. and I've allowed you to do it. So therefore something must be wrong with me. Yes. Do you get what I mean? And then you don't understand what's going on and there's a shift in you. Something changes in you, but you can't put your finger on it, you know? You go from being that quiet, shy little kid, getting dropped to school, crying all the time, then having to call my brother down and I'm sitting being nursed with some oranges and a glass of milk to try and pacify me to engage in school to this wild, you know, sort of like a wild animal wants to turn over tables and chairs and I'm going to fight anybody. You know, if you stand too close to me, I'm punching you up. If you try to hug me, I'm going to cramp away from you. I don't know why I'm cramping away from you, but I don't like it. So as I grew up, I would tell people, I don't really like to be touched. I don't like to hug people. I don't like to do this. Like, I'm not emotional. I don't do that sort Mm -hmm. of thing. So, and even in my adult time, like I would do interviews and I I, I even remember now recently saying to people like, you know, I am a manager that would be there to support you. But, you know, when you get all crying, you're going to get yeah. overly emotional. Like, I'm not I'm not going to come and give you a hug. I'm not going to do that. I might offer you a tissue, yeah. but I would probably keep talking to you because automatically a shield will go up mm-hmm. that I will distance myself from the emotion that you start to portray because I will not connect to it. Yeah. Yeah? But I've got my deputy who's very much for, you start crying, she's, she's going to sit there, cup of tea in hand. She mm-hmm. wants to know how you are, how you're doing, everything else, and you will have hugs and you can, your tears can dry on her shoulder for the rest of the day. Mm-hmm. You get what I mean? And you don't realise that it is because you are now in a cycle of pain. So you 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 were forced to disconnect from the humane aspect of your innocence. And as you grow up with that disconnect, you automatically manifest it in disconnecting to people yes. mm-hmm. because you don't know how to receive people. You don't, you, you're distrusting of anyone's intentions. So you might do something, like somebody copies me, I ring up my business partner, I say, wait, I'm, I'm, I'm offended because this person's done this. And she would say to me, but imitation is the greatest form of flattery. And I say, well, why don't I get that then? You know, because automatically in my head, I think you are doing what I'm doing now. 
I'm not a ro- I can't see myself in a positive light to say, well, I've just a role model and I've set a trend mm-hmm. and somebody is now manifesting that trend to send out my message to a wider platform. I think, okay, they're copying me. They're trying to sort of snuff me out and then yeah. do that. You know what I mean? Take it away. As a, it's, it's like that. So there's always those thoughts that turn anything innocent into something sinister because mm-hmm. you've not had nobody actually stops and realises that those early learning stages of my life where I was supposed to form and learn behaviour, I was only taught brokenness, hatred, evil, discontentment, disconnection and brokenness. Mm -hmm. So that's the way I've grown up. Do you know what I mean? So I I was the person that I would always make friends easy, but I'd lose friends just as easy. And I'd think, that's just my life. You know, you'd get into a relationship and you'd get into a relationship for getting into a relationship's sake. It was never getting into a relationship, let's start investing into our future. We're going to put down for tomorrow. I have never had that kind of mindset. Do you get what yes. I mean? It was just, this is for the now. Enjoy that bit of love for the now because tomorrow's not promised to know, but you never know what's going to happen. So it was always that, yeah, it might not carry on from today. And then you sort of, once you got what you got from that, well, I've got bored now. You know, that person is probably looking back on most of my relationships. I would say that the individuals with generally did love me. And when I wanted to walk away, they generally did want to, you know, they did fight. They did try to hold on. They did do. And I just completely pushed them away. away. Mm -hmm. Because for me is, I only knew disconnect. I didn't understand what is this? What is, you know, what was longevity? What was sustainability? What did these words even mean? I don't think they came into my vocabulary until I was very much probably recent years that those sorts of words have come into my vocabulary and I've understood what those words have meant but the things that I've been taught as an adult especially as a manager they've been life-changing for me because I've never been taught that as a child I've never understood the word impact so nobody had ever said to me well you keep on you you keep finding yourselves in these toxic situations mm-hmm. it can't always be the other person's fault you now need to stop and start evaluating yourself what are you doing what decisions are you making yeah. that is causing you to have these outcomes when you're going into something what is your desire what's your ultimate desire how are you making your changes and you know alternating what you're doing so that you're doing something you're thinking okay something's gone wrong here let me reflect what did I do what part have I played in this as far as I was concerned everybody was always wrong I was always perfect I always did things in the logistic regimented way how did that break down and it broke down because although I could do things in a regimented way and tick those tick boxes because that was the correct way to do it there was no emotion behind it so even though I was given what I should have been given I wasn't connecting to that emotion so that person who I was in a relationship with always had a need Mm. and I could never meet that need because I couldn't see that need and I couldn't identify to that need so, so was it almost like you did, you kind of, on the face of it, you did all the things you needed to do in a relationship, but the real heart element was never really there? Never there. Okay. Never there. And that's the hard, that's the, I think it took, and this is so awful, but it literally took my son's murder to connect me to emotion Mm. and it connected me to emotion in the most brutal way because the first real emotion that I can say I really felt outside of anger Mm -hmm. was grief and I think to become more connected with feelings and to feel grief first the intensity was beyond comprehension because there wasn't 
I didn't understand love. You know, I didn't really understand joy. I didn't understand anything. So I didn't have a platform yeah. to measure anything to. There wasn't a contrast. There wasn't a con. Guess, yeah. Nothing at all. So to be awoken, you know, to be awoken and the first kiss you get is the kiss of grief. My gosh. It's, it, it literally spirals you out of, out of control. And it lit- and I think it catapults you into a realm of muteness because you just don't know how to explain. Like, what the hell is this? What are these feelings? What are these emotions? What am I feeling inside my body? What is happening to my body? It, the confusion, the pain. It is, it's probably the worst horror movie ever told to be awoken and to wake up, really wake up in life, and just to wake up in the darkness of grief. Well, that's very powerful. As, as you were talking, I was almost kind of visualising, I guess, you know, a heart that was literally, like, covered in layers and layers and layers and layers of concrete. Like, so much so that it, nothing could ever penetrate. No. But then it was literally like, Someone got a sledgehammer and smashed, smashed it. Smashed it. Exposed it to all the elements and now it's kind of gone into shock because it doesn't know yeah. what to do, you yeah. know? Wow. Yeah. That was always... that In the very early beginning when people used to ask me how I feel and I think you may have heard me say it before but that was the only way I could explain it. I said to people, I thought that I was laying down and somebody literally grabbed me out of a sleep, out of a bed and literally pulled me to the edge of a cliff and then they just threw me over the edge of the cliff so before my foot could even get it we was going at such a fast pace before I even knew what was happening I was falling off this cliff I slammed on those rocks underneath me and every part of my body broke and shattered Mm -hmm. like glass and then within a minute the the intense like my body filled with the most intense pain but before I could open my mouth and actually scream out and cry a loose was wrapped around my neck and it was pulled up and it was because life the wheel of life was still turning and they told me you've got to move you've got to walk and it was a thing of you're a mum you've got to do this think of the kids you've got to do this you've got you can't do that think of Kyle and he wouldn't want and it was a case of I was still invisible because I still didn't matter I still had yeah. to function and do because of somebody else or something else we still at the po- at that moment in time it still wasn't about Rachel Webb and that loose that was around my neck was pulling me and I was just told to walk and I was trying to walk but with every footstep that I took I was being stabbed in every single direction I was shaking I heard the rattling and I just felt the most excruciating piece of pain that was there and because my eyes were being stabbed by the fragments of my skull I couldn't see I couldn't focus Mm -hmm. so I was staggering 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 and as far as everybody was concerned I had to keep going I had to keep going. There was an expectancy that I must keep going and I had to keep going. And then you'd hear people shouting from the sidelines, you're so strong. And I would be, and I could feel myself rattling and yeah. getting angry because I'm not strong. I'm not walking broken because I want to, yeah. because if I was left to my own devices, I'd still be laying at the bottom of that cliff there crying. But no one allowed me that opportunity to really lay there to cry because you told me I had to walk. So I'm not strong because... I didn't choose this path. Yeah. This path was chosen for me. I've got no op- I've got no option because at the end of the day, I do have children. Yes. So I've got to get up. Mm. You know, I am a mum. I've got to get up. The house needs to be cleaned. I've got to get up. Somebody needs to cook the food. I've got to get up. Somebody needs to earn a living and their keep for the, so the children can live. I've got to go to work. All these things were there because it had to be there. And, you know, I don't feel that... I feel that 
when you make a choice to do something and overcome, in my mind at that time, that was the strength. Yes. When you're forced to move, that's not strength because you ain't got a choice. Yeah, you haven't got a choice. You haven't got a choice. So you have to do it. So don't tell me I'm strong. I don't really have an option in this. And if I had an option, I wouldn't be picking this path. But the path was chosen for me and I had no alternative but to keep walking down that path. In hindsight, looking back on, I guess, say the, the period of maybe like the last year then, well, from Kyron's death um, up until like the anniversary of his death, what did you need in that time? So say, 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 you know, if you could rewrite what happened in that period, what, what did you need? What, what would have been your ideal situation for you to? The thing is, because I guess you're 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 still here. You're you know we're talking. You know, um, but emotionally, what kind of support did you need that you didn't? I think in an ideal, yeah, I think in an ideal, I think for everybody that was there and for everything that everybody's done, I'm always eternally grateful for, yeah, and I, I don't want my next response to seem like I'm ungrateful, but in an ideal world, if I had to write it to exactly that, what I would have loved was for my family to have overcast my doorstep. I would have wanted people to have my family build that protective wall and bubble around me and to have always just been there. Like, you know, when you want to sleep, wake, everything you're doing, I would have wanted to see my immediate family immediately there. Um, It was really hard because I, in the beginning, I became very resentful. I'm not going to lie. I was resentful because I wanted to know, where are you? You know, Mm -hmm. when messages were coming to my phone, it was friends. It was more friends and people outside and people I hadn't spoken to for a long time. So they would say, what's cliche, isn't it? You know, how are things? How are you doing? Let me know if you need anything. I'm here if you need it and so forth and so forth. And that's the correct things to say, isn't it? That's how we're taught to show empathy and compassion towards somebody. Um, But I felt very much alone. You know, the door... Didn't not in and I and, and I blamed myself because in the beginning when everybody was saying I want to come around and see you I didn't want to come and see you I didn't want anyone to come here because mm-hmm. I didn't want to talk to anybody I didn't have anything to say and all I wanted to do is cry and I think what I needed was to have my loved ones around me but what I needed was permission from them to just grieve in the way I needed to grieve so if I wanted to scream I needed to be able to scream and cry and drop on the floor but I would have wanted you to have still been here so when I've dropped on the floor Mm. you can come and encompass yourself Mm. around me and hold me while I'm rocking on that floor Mm -hmm. do you get what I'm saying but I didn't feel that I was allowed to do that you know I didn't feel that when people came and if I'm absolutely honest nobody told me I couldn't I just didn't feel I could so when people came I felt that I had to maintain an element of strength I had to maintain a particular composure because it made other people feel uncomfortable Mm. you know I made other people sad so I'd say "Mm -mm, come on stop don't say things like that I don't want to hear you say that you know I reached out to people in January I remember calling people I I was drinking I was crying you know I was telling everybody because at that point I didn't even know that 
I had PTSD. I didn't even know that a disorder had kicked in. I just was panicked in everything. Mm -hmm. You know, I would be convinced that if I open up the front door, there was going to be a gunman at our front door. And as soon as I open up the front door, someone was going to shoot us. If my children went to the shop, somebody was going to try to kidnap them. Somebody was going to grab them. My daughters was going to be um, taken away. They'd be trafficked. Uh, They were going to get, my son was good. Somebody was going to get hurt at the shop. I was so paranoid and convinced beyond doubt that one of my another one of my children was going to die I was convinced of it you know and I and every time people tell me stop saying that stop saying that you know don't say things like that you know come and stop crying come and we don't want you to cry come and think of the children you need to do this you know you've got to start doing you got to and nothing made sense to me it didn't make sense to me and I knew something was wrong but I wouldn't have been able to put my mind on it or put my hand on it to say to you right this is exactly what was going on and then I, and then I became confused because it was a case of okay something's so not right here there is this very thick heavy dark cloud that is very very much always present very much always present and to the point that this cloud every day seems to be getting closer and closer and closer and closer and closer how do I explain that to somebody because if I say D look up there's a cloud here and it's blinding me I can't see you're going to look up and see a big bright blue sky and think Rach what are you talking about do you know what I mean how do you explain that what was that I didn't know what that was I just knew it was there Mm -hmm. yeah um the closer it got the more I could feel those unshed tears constricting my esophagus. I couldn't breathe. I'd wake up scratching my throat. I'd have scratch marks all down me on my chest because I was convinced I couldn't breathe. Something was stifling me and I didn't know what was stifling me. If somebody asked me a question and they'd say, how are you? My head would be screaming. Mm -hmm. Somebody help me here. There's a problem. I'm back on this cliff, but this time something, this cloud is pushing me off and I'm the other side of the cliff but I'm holding on but I'm losing my grip my fingers are pulling away there's something wrong and I don't know what to do you know and when people would message me in my head I'd be saying somebody help me I I I need help I I know I need help I don't know how I need help or what help I need but something's not right and I didn't know what was what was going on I couldn't sleep if I did sleep I was having nightmares um Kyron's death would play out over and over and over but it would take different forms all the time um I used to wake up believing that somebody had poured his blood in my mouth and I'd always think I could taste blood I could smell blood um there would be days where I would bath and scrub, 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 because I'm thinking there's blood somewhere and I need to get the blood away. And then there's days when I had no motivation. I couldn't get off the chair. I couldn't get out of my bed. I wasn't going to have no bath. I wasn't, I didn't really want to eat. I didn't want to do anything at all. You know, it was to that extreme. There wasn't no sort of medium. When we had to go outside, I had to put on my face. So I'd put on my makeup, I'd make sure my hair was done and I'd put on my face because I don't know how, but it felt like people needed to see me looking normal so they could cope. So then I became so aware of somebody else's feelings, other people's emotions, and they didn't want to see me upset. They don't want to see me cry because they don't really know what to do. So what do I do? I had a massive meltdown at Kyron's wake, like a big meltdown. And even in that, when I had that meltdown, I've never in my life lost control like that. I've never just completely lost control of my emotions and been so erratic and so just so crazy like oh my gosh what is this I would have had a fight with everybody there and as far as I was concerned why are you standing looking at me go and get my son and bring my son home that's all I asked you what to do why is nobody moving and there was nothing that made me feel irrational 
you know this was my rationale right now you know everybody had to go and do it and one of my friends was there and he said to me that when he was on the stairs I kept hitting him to say to him to go get my son he said oh I just wanted to punch you I don't think he realized that that really knocked me back of course because I just thought I've never in the whole of my existence lost control like that I have never displayed that amount of pain that amount of emotion that amount the scream that came out of my mouth I wouldn't even be able to explain it to you because I don't think I've ever heard that kind of noise before um to see everybody the, the 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 you know it was just like a chorus of people and to see all of that so to the point that I closed my eyes I closed my eyes I knew what I was doing but I closed my eyes from everybody and everything and literally in the blink of that darkness completely lost control and somebody turned around and said I wanted to hit you and I just thought right I've got to contain myself then because mm-hmm. my pain is upsetting to people it's almost- and it's not making them empathetic to you they're just getting cross with you it's almost like you had to become everybody else's crutch. Yeah. So it was a thing of, you know, fake it to make it. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So just don't do it. Don't talk about it. Don't do it. And then I didn't know what to do because I didn't want to talk about anything else but Kyron. That was the only topic of conversation I wanted to have because mm-hmm. this was it. And then I started to become quiet. And I think in January was the first was the first time... I opened my mouth and I said to a particular family member, I want to die. I I, I actually feel like I want to kill myself. And they told me to stop saying that, don't say that. And that was it. And because they said to me, don't say it, I never repeated it again. Mm. It didn't go. But it's still going on. Yeah, it didn't go. I just stopped repeating it. So then what was happening is I'd be walking down the road and I'd be watching the cars. Because in my head, I'm thinking, which one should I throw myself in front of? And then you'd think it's probably best to throw yourself in front of like the big trucks because they're going to hit you and they got the crate underneath, isn't it? So when they hit you, something's going to grab you. It's going to drag you. It's just going to be quick. As opposed to if they hit me in a car, they're going to throw me, but I might land on the other side. And then you started contemplating it. I'm not going to lie. At no point at all did I ever think about the poor driver and the psychological impact that I was going to have on the driver if the driver hit me. It was just that. And then I'd walk and, you know, I'd I'd pinch myself or I'd be scratching myself or I'd be doing stupid things and I'd never really understand why I was doing it. But the, the want and the desire or the need to hurt myself or, you know, you think that, okay, if I stab myself in the belly... This pain that's inside it that I can't explain to anybody that's really grimy. If I stab my belly or cut it, I'm going to help it to pour out. You know, it's that kind of feeling that starts thinking that you think that whatever's inside is so overwhelming, it's so intense that if I just cut or do something, that's all going to pour out and it's going to just give me a little bit of release that I can just say and have that immediate respite. You don't think about nothing else. Do you get what I mean? And then it got so bad that I'd be cooking. And I'd be boiling water. And my head would say to me to push my face in the boiling hot water. That I'd want to put my head in the water. I'd open up a window and I'd be arguing why I shouldn't throw myself out the window. You know, Mm -hmm. I'd be peeling potatoes or vegetables. And I'd know the knife is sharp and I'd just be thinking, just a quick slice, it's going to be all right. You know, at the funeral, while they were throwing the dirt on Kyron's coffin, I just wanted to just throw myself in there. You know, I just wanted to just drop in there and just lay in there. Just let the dirt keep going 
and just hold on to my baby. You understand what I'm saying? And it's, you have the most irrational thoughts because Kyron's in that casket. You're throwing dirt. He's suffocating. He's not going to be able to breathe in a minute. You're going to restrict all the oxygen. And, you know, he's going to, he's going to get out in a minute. So let me, if if he hears me or sees or knows that I'm there, he's going to get get up in a minute because that that was my Kyron, you know. Mm. Wherever I was, he wanted to be, didn't ever want to not be around me. So, you know, it's like, Kyron, get up. But then, then the thoughts come back and think, yeah, but you know what? This is what everyone said at the hospital because that's what they all said at the hospital. Go and speak to Kyron. As soon as he hears your voice, he's going to get up, he's going to wake up, he's going to do. And I did all of that and I did all that and he didn't get up. And I was just dying, you know? You just feel like such a failure. Like, what is going on here? You know, I'm talking to you on TV. This works. People's eyes open. They hear the person they want or the tear drops on them and their eyes open. And I'm thinking, what the hell's going wrong here? Because this fairy tale don't feel like a fairy tale to me anymore. This has become a nightmare. And I I don't understand what's going on here. And he didn't, you know, he didn't wake up. Karen was never going to wake up. The hospital staff knew before I even got there, they knew that Kyron had died. Even though they got his heart beating, he was on life support. I generally believe that they did that just to give me the opportunity she to say goodbye. Say, I think that yeah. is, I think that's the kindness that hospitals do, don't they? Where they kind of want to make it as, you know, ease that transition as best as they can, give you the chance to say goodbye and to see your um, child and so forth. But I think the doctors knew categorically that he was never going to wake up again. Because, yeah, because I, I remember in the book... Um when you first have the conversation with Kyron's dad and he says he's dead. That's the first, that's the very, when I picked up the phone, the first, first words I heard was Kyron's dead. So when, so then when it kind of, I mean, I don't want to give too much of the book away, but then when it went into um, the conversation with, I don't know if it was the police that called you um, and they were saying, you know, just get down here, we'll blue light you from this point, blah, 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 yeah. blah. So I was like, so so in my head, I was thinking, well, why is he being told that he's dead? And I think the dad went into shock because what right, had happened okay. is he had come home from work and switched on the news. And on the news, he had heard that somebody had been stabbed down the road. Something he felt, he felt uncomfortable. That's how he felt? Yeah. It? So he couldn't, he didn't understand what made him feel uncomfortable. He just knew that somebody had been stabbed down the road because it was on the news. He left his house and walked down to the place. He walked down to Worsley Avenue and he to check what was going on. And somebody told him that a man had been stabbed. So because he heard a man had been stabbed, he came back. And I think what hit him is when he got home, Karen wasn't at home, which was unusual. Yeah. yeah? And I think that's probably what prompted him to go to think, hmm, Karen's not here. Someone's been stabbed out the road. Let me just make sure so it's not Karen. So when they told him a man had been stabbed, he went. And if you look at the very first headline that ever was distributed, it did say a man had been stabbed. At um, Worsley Avenue. So it was only when he was walking back from Worsley Avenue, which is literally about a 15 minute walk from his house, it was only when he got back to his door, police was at the gate. So when he got back, I think immediately that's your realisation, isn't it? Something's not right. Something in you doesn't feel right. You've gone. Somebody said something, you're coming back, but then you're probably thinking, then where is Kyron? You know, that's a natural thought that's going to come in your head. Why is this little boy not there? Likelihood is his dad would have called his phone as well. Do you know what I mean? And your phone's either going to ring out or it's going to go onto answer machine. Yeah. But something, because you're going to be thinking. So when he saw the police at the gate, I think that's what hit him. And I think, I don't know, obviously I don't know the conversation. I've never asked him what conversation they had or how he was told. But I think while he was with the police and they were heading towards the hospital, that's when I got the call okay. to say. So I don't know 
at that point if it was just his gut reaction that made him say it or if that was what he was told I I don't know when I got to the hospital Kyron was in theatre and we couldn't see him they'd worked on Kyron I look I'd say about 12 I think he got to the hospital they said about 7 30 and we went in to see him probably 7 30 7 30 8 ish the following on the um 18th okay yeah because we was in that waiting room all night waiting and he was just in theatre he was in theatre that's all we were being told Mm. but honestly you know when a day just etches into your mind you can never forget that I just arriving at that hospital Everything was just surreal and it was not even real. It was when I got to the hospital and I saw those two plain clothes police officers at the hospital. Well, that was it. I could have just dropped down dead on the floor right then and there. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't you don't know, but my body was shaking. And it was shaking simply because the scene looked like a scene from Law and Order. And that's the only that's the only sort of connection I have with law is yeah. in the law dramas. Because luckily for Kyron and his brother, they hadn't, you know, there wasn't, they hadn't engaged in antisocial behaviour that I was aware yeah. of. They had never been arrested mm-hmm. um, for anything that I need, you know, of late or what have you. So it wasn't a frequent thing of going to police stations, or whatever. Yeah. So I just wasn't used to yeah, yes. that mm-hmm. process. And so it was just too much of a shock. And I think it was just too surreal because we'd heard about so many children being stabbed. But as every parent, I suppose, you never ever think it's going to be, gonna your, be child. your child. I think... You know, you get people, every time someone gets stabbed, they say, oh, but he wasn't in a gang. And you just think, you get why they say that because you kind of have that ideology that, well, if you're in a gang and you're engaging in that kind of lifestyle, to be caught out in that lifestyle, you see that as a kind of expectancy yeah, like that it's by, there. You live by the sword, you kind of die by the sword. But yeah. majority of the children that are dying, they're not dying in combat. They're yeah, not, they're yeah. not, they haven't got two swords out and they're clang, 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 clang and then one person's dying. The deaths are always just, appear, as far as I'm concerned, unprovoked. You see somebody and then you're stabbing somebody. Mm. I don't care. if You could be in a gang, you could be anybody. That's not a reason to kill somebody. Do you know what I mean? Like if there was self-defence and you are in a fight and something's happening and somebody dies from that, again, that's going to be tragic but you can understand you two was in a in a in fight. fight. You was yeah. trying to defend yourself and something's happened and it's led to this person losing their life. But to just walk up to somebody and stab them just for the sake of stabbing someone because you're an ops or you're in the wrong area or mm. you're, I don't like you. It's absolutely ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, the, the, it, it, it pains me to, I think as adults, well, I don't know about you, but for me, I find it so difficult to understand and even like get myself into uh, a place where I can put myself in the shoes of somebody who can just stab someone yeah. like that. Like to me, like I've I've spoken about this, um, you know, on the on the podcast previously and on my radio show, and. Um, I think it was Gwenton Slowly that I was talking to, I think on the podcast or maybe the radio show. And I was saying like, I don't, I don't, like for me, I feel like to stab someone, that, that, that takes, that takes a lot. Like, cause I was like, I don't get, why don't people just, cause to me, like shooting someone is easier because mm-hmm. you can do it at a distance, but for you to stab somebody. You've got to get quite up and close. It's very intimate. Quite, you know, you're a mum, you cook, you know what it's like 
cutting meat and stuff like that. So, like, how, how, I don't know, it's just like, how do you, where, where, where is your heart? Where is your mind? There isn't, it's an emotional disconnect. I think, when I look back at my younger version of myself, when I used to think about murder, things like that, it wasn't something that was horrific. I could watch serial killer documentaries, Mm. you could watch things, and I could see it as entertainment. Yeah, Yeah, uh there was an emotional disconnect. I didn't connect at that time with the emotions of the family. I never, my mind never ran on to how that mother must have felt or what that person, the one thing that I would always connect to is the suffering and I wouldn't want somebody to suffer. Yeah. yeah. So if I heard that somebody was tortured in it, and I think, oh man, you know, yeah. because you just think you should have just did it quickly. Why should they have to mm. suffer? And I think that that my mind always went there because in my life I suffered, and it was a prolonged suffering. And so that was the only sort of real connection that you had to somebody. When there's an emotional disconnect, like if you, if I see you. And I think, I don't like you, or you're getting on my nerves. As a younger child, if somebody said, we're going to rush her and beat her up, there's nothing in my mindset, I'm thinking back to myself when I was younger, that would have thought, oh no, please don't hurt her. That's not going to be nice. You know, this is a reflection of yourself. She's another person like you, or it's your black sister, your your white brethren, whatever. Like, don't do that. We're human beings, let's be in love. That wasn't in my in my psyche. Do you understand what I mean? As grown adults, when we try to look at what children are undergoing today, we always evaluate it with our adult mindsets, through our adult eyes. So we will connect because now we're mums. So don't do that to that person's child because I would not be tolerating anyone doing that to my child. Mm. You can connect now because you've got some sort of medium to give it to you. But if you've got a young child that has no life experiences, that is used to anger, that suffers within themselves and also has that emotional disconnect, you're nothing. So if I've got this knife and I stab it, because at the end of the day, when I hear certain songs or what have you, they tell you where to stab people to make sure that you're really taking them out. And they aim for vital organs. Mm -hmm. Do you get what I mean? Because they just want a quick thing, isn't it? Like you're beefing me, I'm beefing you. What the suffering is for them is that constant beefing. If I mark you, you're coming back for me. Then I've got to come back for you. You've got to come back for me. But you know what? If I take you out quick and you're just gone, that's it. That's my situation ended. And I think that mindset in itself, sorry, I I interrupted. I think that mindset in itself imprisons the humanity, the humane existence within them, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And I understand that, but there there is no child that can stab someone and walk away and be okay about that. I would hope so. That, you know, unless you are, you know, a general psychopath or sociopath, you would actually hope so. But the thing is, is they walk away, they might go home, they bill a spliff, they smoke it, check to make sure that the investigations, whatever, whatever, they get away with it. But then the pro- if they get away with it, does that make them stop? Do you know what I mean? Because then they carry on and do it again because yeah. you think, oh, I've got, you know, it's, I think it's, I think we, because we don't ever have that mindset, we would never understand how anybody could have that mindset and how anybody could do such a thing. You know, I used to think like that. When you think about paedophiles, I'd think, but how can you look at this child Child, and find that attractive? How could that arouse you? What is it about this young, undeveloped body that is going to make you think anything? It's just, it feels really depraved and disgusting when you think about it. My mind is never, ever going to understand it because I don't have that mindset. Do you get what I mean? I'm never going to understand how anybody can walk up to somebody 
that literally is dressed like them, looks like them, everything about them, see that fear in their eyes, hear that plea, hear that cry, anything and think that you can do it. I don't understand that. You know, when you read about those Greek ones and they're, you know, somebody's being hit with bats and they're being stabbed and kicked and stamped on. I I don't understand that. Even when you see these videos that are circulating, I don't understand that. Mm. Do you get what I mean? Like, what would make you do that? If you're, especially when it's 10 of you on one, why, why bats, why feet, why kicking, why stamping, why, why not, why not, why everything? Because it's already, there's too many of you. It, it doesn't make sense. And I don't think it's ever going to make sense to anybody that doesn't have that mindset or is imprisoned in the ignorance of that situation. Do you get what I mean? Because you know, sometimes you would do something, you'll convince yourself that what you're doing is okay or what you're doing is all right. And that's how you then carry it through. I don't, I, I couldn't, I couldn't. To Child abuse is something that is a big thing for me. Mm-hmm. And I can't understand why anybody would cause a child harm even down to a child causing another child harm how can a child something so young and innocent why is the child so young and innocent with so much hurt and anger and hatred to another child that you're prepared to take this child's life and ruin your life Mm. in the process of it for what for what do you know what i mean and some people boast and brag yeah but you know i think i kind of feel like the boasting and bragging it's a fake. It's the it's, persona. Yeah, it's a fake. It's yeah, yeah. persona. Because, again, like you said, unless you're a psychopath, I cannot even see how you would... It's fair as well. I yes. think yes, I think fair, it's fair plays a really significant part. Plays a significant part. Because now, you know, you've got children, 10, 11, 12s and 13s, that are so scared that they can't go into a particular area because they're going to get G-checked and robbed. And so they themselves will carry, not because they're thinking I'm going to kill a man, they're carrying that knife because to protect themselves because they think that, okay, if somebody comes to attack me or whatever, I've got something to kind of hold myself. I don't think their thought process allows them to believe that the moment you bring that knife out as in self-defence, you potentially could end that situation being the murderer. You know, I don't think they think it through no, to that degree. They don't. And I think that's the sad part of all because you've got a very, you've got war. War generally is an adult situation, isn't it? So you've got this adult situation being orchestrated and manufactured in the innocence, undeveloped mindsets of children who haven't had enough life's experiences to really truly understand the repercussions of their actions, what exactly they're doing and the impact that it's going to have on the rest of their life but also stain their generation's life as well you know because their children are going to be children of a murderer because you can't wash that title away and you can't run away there's you know there's certain things you know most murders are quite public yes once it's out there it's out there you know so you could come out of jail 15 16 years later have your own kids think you're living life somebody's going to come across that article Mm -hmm. And that's going to constantly come and stain you over and over and over. Your children potentially will become victims because they're going to be bullied Mm -hmm. because it's going to be over and over. But there's a ripple impact. Mm -hmm. There's a ripple impact for the siblings of the individuals that you murder. There's always a risk that those siblings grow up with that level of hatred Mm -hmm. and they come back, you know, and it just keeps that cycle going over and over and and over. That's where, you know, when people talk about generational curses... 
it's not a, a, a hex or a curse per se, but it's the knock-on effect to someone's actions yep. beforehand. Yeah. You know? So, so how long has it now been? It's been, what, a year and... Three, three months. Well, yeah, say a year and two months. How, in so in this period of time, have your feelings towards Kyron's murderer and his accomplice have has that changed has anything how would you describe like your feelings over the course of the with the murderer himself i think initially when i first that friday that i had to hold my son and he died in my arms and i stood up and i said my son's dead you know it was the first time i spoke it out loud that time had i had you brought those boys in front of me, they would both be buried today as well. I would have took their lives without a flicker of a thought. I created an image and an ideology of a monster. Yeah. For some reason, my brain never saw a child. I saw this big beast, a big, heavy hulk. I'd created this image of these big beasts. When I heard February, when we had to go to, when it was the first plea hearing, I didn't go to that one. His dad went and the murderer was acting, you know, crying and what have you. I had no empathy whatsoever. I was told how much he cried and how he was behaving and running up and down, acting as though um, he had had a sort of mental decline. Yeah. I didn't care. It didn't do anything for me at all. There was nothing there. When I went to court on March the 9th and he stood up, that was the first time we actually saw him. I think everything collectively was quite traumatic. So we had come into court, and as I say, my only and and what I know about law or court was just this law and order. So on TV, I think it's quite orderly. You know, yes. you all sit down; it's very ordered. The judge walked. You all have to stand for the judge. Somebody will conk conk the thing. They get ordered. It's very ordered. Not in real life. So you go in, there's a big waiting room, you're just sitting there endlessly. Um, you're constantly, the QC would constantly come and get me, take me upstairs, tell you something, come back, come back. So there was, it was just constant, constant, constant suspense. Sorry. No. <laughs> okay, that's really weird. <laughs> so, okay. What was it, your chain? Yeah. Oh. Karen's probably joining interview. <laughs> there was constant, constant suspense mm -hmm. in in the um, room. I think your chain is symbolising that we're going to break the chain, we're breaking the cycle. Amen to that. <laughs> yeah, so... Um, I'll, I'll tell you about this later. Yeah. Later. After when we were going, it was just, as I said, it was just constant, 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 going to the QC, coming back, going to the Q So your anxiety is really high. The suspense is really high. It's becoming a lot, yeah, so the nerves and then it's kicking in. When we go into the court, we're in the court. Nobody actually explained the court process to what you're going to go through, what to expect, those sorts of things. I think to a degree, there's an expectancy that you just know. Yeah. It's really weird. It just feels like people just think that you know what to do or how to behave. Um, nobody announced that the judge was coming. It was just a big bang at the door. And that startled me because what had happened is just prior to the bang, I'd heard the clanking of chains. And um, immediately chains make you feel oppressed. 
So it's that sense of oppression and that unnerves me because I don't like people to be oppressed. So straight away, I felt really unnerved. I heard his chains and I don't know why, but the only, the first image that came into my head, you know, the image that you get off slaves when they're shackled and they've got the big thing around their neck and around their arms and around their feet. That was the first image that came into my mind. And then there was this big bang. Well, I nearly jumped out of my... I could have literally fainted. That's my heart beat so fast and it got really bright. I thought I was going to pass out. Then my family liaison officer was behind me. She sort of pushed me to tell me that I had to get up. Mm-hmm. So we stood up. When I looked to my right, immediately he was already there in the box. Oh, wow. He was standing there. And he looked like one of my nephews. He looked like one of my nephews and it threw me. It literally threw me. And I think it threw me because immediately when I looked at you... I immediately thought of a member of my family okay. and empathy just washed over me straight away wow. because I associated myself to you yeah. and therefore I felt you. And um, as I said to you, I'd never really sensed all this surge of emotions before. This is the first time that I've been able to really experience all these weird feelings and emotions that I couldn't put my hand on it. But I know that I had empathy right there for this boy. And he looked like a boy. His hair was untidy. It was picky. It needed a comb. Yeah. His skin looked dry. It needed to be moisturised. Um, he had on the grey tracksuit. At that time, I didn't understand that it was prison uniform. And I was just thinking, this isn't the way people bring prisoners in. They're normally in a nice suit, yeah. looking tidy, isn't it? Because you've got to make that good impression. And he had these like black-rimmed glasses just on the tip of his nose. And he wouldn't look at me. He avoided avoided my eye contact. But I think he connected eye contact with my eldest son and then looked away and he was there. And then they asked him his name and he only had to say his name. They read out the charge and he said guilty. And because he had said guilty, he now doesn't have to answer any more questions. He doesn't have to say any more. That is just it. And there was a surge of emotions. One, I became teary because... We were all here, so me, my biological family, um, my friends, Kyron's godmothers. Also, I was quite packed with people, mm-hmm. and he had nobody there, and I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't get past that because I had to think, you know. And there, you automatically go into mummy mode because I just think, what could my children do that I wouldn't be, be there? there? And there's nothing they could do. I will have disappointment. Yeah. I would be embarrassed. I'd be ashamed but I would be there because he has done probably the biggest thing he's ever going to do in the rest of his entire life, stand in court and plead guilty for the murder of a 15-year-old child and condemn himself by his own words and actions. And there was nobody there. There was just nobody there. And as a mum, I didn't, I couldn't, I couldn't get my, and then I started berating myself because I was thinking, oh my gosh, if Karen was alive, is he going to feel ashamed of me? Like, is he going to be embarrassed that... I'm having empathy for this child and that I'm seeing a child and because I'm seeing a child, I'm connecting to him and the emotions that should be here and not here because I can't see past mummy eyes and mummy eyes can only see a child that's been abandoned, that's alone by himself, having to face the unthinkable by himself. And for some strange reason, from that day, I've never had anger for him I've never had anger when I hear he cries and stuff I'm not going to pretend and act like I'm a saint I don't have empathy in the sense that 
through the sentencing, I heard that he had his head down, he cried all the way through the trial. He wouldn't look at the CCTV footage when it was played at court, which was quite excruciating because it was played over and over and over and over again. And he wouldn't look up. I didn't think, oh, no, poor you. I didn't feel bad at all. Um, When I first received his letter... I thought, oh, this is crap. You didn't even write it. It didn't mean anything. It was just something. And then there was a handwritten one and there were certain phrases in the handwritten letter that I just thought, oh, gosh, you poor thing. Like, you know, I just think, yes, you've done wrong. Yes, you have to face the consequences. There's always going to be consequences of your actions. You will always be stained. You're always going to be a murderer. You're you're always going to be the boy that killed Kyron. But for some strange reason with this young man, he is now infused into me. Because I can never think of Kyron without thinking of him. I can never... Anytime Kyron, which often plays out in my head, he's always in that film film room Mm. that is playing around. Every time that I do, like, I find myself curious about him I find myself interested in what's going on um I don't want to hear news that he's been attacked and beaten in prison because for some reason he now feels part of me so I think yes be in prison yes there should be consequences and yes you should go through some form of hardship I don't want you to have you know a glorious life and everything's going to be perfect you are going to experience things but you need to experience things because you've placed yourself in the situation but I wouldn't take any pleasure of somebody coming to tell me that he had been hurt in prison yeah. or he'd been attacked repeatedly or he'd been murdered. I know a lot of my family don't show that same mm-hmm. concept and they'd probably take great pleasure to hear these things, as many other people will. But I don't... Love. Laid. Bear. Because you've got to give me a reason mm-hmm. why you killed my son because right now... Um, the defence, you, you know you're entitled to have a certain amount of de- defence pleas. So yeah. he had his three defence things, which there was no evidence to sustain any of those. And then in the end, Carmen got a full exoneration from the judge um, because he hadn't offered up any violence. He hadn't provoked it in any way. Um, he wasn't a risk to the boys at all in anything. Yeah. When you watch CCTV, there's just nothing there. And then I... A friend of mine is a social entrepreneur, Errol. He spoke at our book launch and he said to me once, but, you know, why, why do you want to know why? Like, what's that going to do? You know, and when do you know why and you get the reason? Is it ever going to be good enough? What excuse do they give you that's going to be enough? You know, what does that do? It's it's not going to resurrect crime. It doesn't rewrite the past. It doesn't do anything. And um, when he first said it, I couldn't accept what he was saying. I was just looking at him thinking... Rav, shut your mouth. Do you know what I mean? Like, I wasn't even prepared to even listen or take it in. It was like, yeah, whatever. Let him waffle his bit off and say what he thinks he needs to say and then move on, you know, what do you know? It's only when I got home and I started to really, really ponder on it and reflect on what he was saying and it just rang true because I just thought, what reason can you give me that I'm going to think is justified enough to why my son's not here? There isn't anything. And if you did tell me why... Is that going to make me feel better? Not really, because Kyron's still dead. And does it rewrite my past? Not really, because Kyron's still dead. Mm. And then I wrote a blog post, and I and the blog post was called There's No Comfort in Why. And I think is when I, as I was writing that and releasing that out, I think that was me letting go of that notion to say there is no comfort in why. So I wrote it really for myself and put it out there. And then whenever that, because you, you sometimes will travel back to why. I just read I think, it. Yeah, I, I think, just yeah, I just read that will. post, yeah. Right. I just read that post and I let it go. Now I'm of a different mindset. I don't want to know why. I just feel that there is something about you now that is connected to me. Kyron was chapter one and for some reason 
your chapter two. And for me is, I don't want to hear the dead sorry. I don't want to hear sorry. I'm not really interested in you crying. What I need you to understand is that day that you stabbed my son and his blood splashed on your hand, his potential, his lifespan and everything that he was prepared to build also splashed into your very being and existence. So if you are telling me that you're sorry, the only way that I can hear that you're sorry is by your next action. You make something of yourself. My son wanted to be an architect, not, you know, sometimes you feel that people say something just to make it look good in the media to paint their son and stuff. No, no, no. He wanted to be an architect. We sat at his funeral. His primary school teachers told how he built um, the sort of... um, background scenes for their school plays and how you know the his love of art he loved to go to museums art was something he saw in at school he's drawing he would study really old artists landscape artists so you knew this was his passion yeah. it was something that he always wanted to do at 15 our one of our last conversations was him saying to me about how um because he started looking into colleges and what he needed to do and he said to me that it was going to take him seven years yeah. in university yeah. and, and he was moaning about but mum what about my social life yeah. like I'm not sure if I can do this again you know you know and we were laughing and I was saying to him but think about the buildings that you're going to build and he was like do you think I can do it and yeah and we would talk about the different sort of buildings that he would design and all of that sort of thing this was his passion you know it wasn't something that anybody told him what to think or what to do or gave this was his passion he researched it he studied it and he started to map it out so when he's looking at years year nine and he's thinking about what um courses he was what subjects he wanted to pick he was looking at what subjects do I need to be an architect because that's what obviously the things that he wanted to pick for his options and that sort of thing you know this was really ingrained so for me is his murderer needs to build he needs to build a very successful positive life he needs to build an empire and I don't mean that he has to be big out there what have you but he needs to do something because you're now the chapter two and that's the only way I can accept a sorry is when I see him making positive decisions and using his life for the greater good as opposed to someone's great destruction because at the moment all he has done is literally destroyed our life it's so interesting to hear you say that because I kind of share the same sentiments about my cousin's murderer um I think for me I soon realised, I think, when, when, you know, when the case was going through the old Bailey and I saw her. And I, I kind of thought, I could wish you the most ill for the rest of your life. But that's not going to change anything. And, you know, your, your, almost your karma, your payback is going to be the fact that you're going to have to live with this for the rest of your life you know it's never going to escape you you're never going to forget it that is always going to be you know a smudge and a stain on you know on, on your brain and your heart for the rest of your life so that almost enough is you know punishment so I can only and and again like you said I there is I'm, I'm very sure that the rest of my family probably don't share the same sentiment and um funny enough my, my my cousin so my um sean's brother he said to he literally said to me like a week and a half ago i'm ready to talk about it i want to do a podcast oh, bless him. you know um so i'll be interested to see what he says you know um and how he kind of feels but i'm sure he probably doesn't share my sentiment but i i totally understand where you're coming from because it doesn't 
I don't know, like for me, I kind of feel like, you know, the best thing for him to do, yet, you know, build an enterprise where he's giving back. Yeah. You know, that would be the most amazing, the most amazing thing. But I just feel very, I don't know why, I feel very, very convicted when it comes to this young man. Uh-huh. The accomplice, don't like him at all. I feel nothing towards him. I don't like him. I don't think he got enough in his sentence to be able to really reflect on his actions. I don't think he really, at this moment in time, truly absorbs what he's done. I don't think he is accepting any responsibility or accountability for the part that he's played. He was the aggressor. And as far as I'm concerned, he created that heightened situation. He was the only one, if you watch the CCTV hype, he's the only one. The murderer and Kyron, calm as Larry. He's the only one. He was the first one to draw a weapon. He's the first one. Him, I don't know why. From start to finish, I don't like him. Mm. I don't like him. For me, as you said, forgiveness is not about the person. It's about you. I know I don't like you. And I hold I hold nothing. Like when I think of him, I think nothing. I just don't like him. Yeah. But if I let myself stay angry and I let that anger harbour in me... I'm not going to heal, no, you know, yeah, and I won't be able to, as I say, as we were saying before, I'm on a stairwell and every time when I want to take a step, that lace, the step is laced with ice and for every step you want to take, I'm slipping down. I won't be able to thaw that ice if I allow that hatred to keep me cold mm-hmm. and keep me frozen. That step is going to freeze more and prevent me from moving to that next level. So I'm not going to do it. I'm going to warm myself and warm my heart and I'm going to heal so I can fall those steps so I can take those progressive steps on to a better life and a better future for me from all my past hurts, from the past traumas as a child to my traumas as an adult. And I think this is my awakening. I've awoken for a reason. I wish it had came via a different path, but this is the way it's come to me and this is the way around that it's come. And I just truly believe that to experience grief as deep and penetrating and as tragic as I have when joy comes I'm just waiting for that blessing because I think it's going to be so sweet yeah it's going to be euphoric yeah I just think it's going to be so sweet because I don't take the things that you take for granted before I don't take for granted again so when somebody smiles that smile has such a different meaning to me now if somebody says I love you it has a completely different meaning to me now if one of the children hug you or sit on my it has a very completely different meaning to me now like everything's so different do you get what I mean it's so so different and that you know it's yeah I like that word that you said euphoric I like that that yeah I just think each day each day is gonna come I'm not there I still have a very traumatised mind. Mm-hmm. I still believe that there's gunmen waiting behind every closed door. I still think that when I open up the door on the street that there's going to be immediate danger. I'm always worried that someone's going to break into my house. I always think that somebody's going to start throwing rocks and things and smash through our windows. I still have nightmares. I'm still overly panicked on everything that the children do when they're coming home from school. I still think that somebody's going to intercept them. Something's going to happen. Like, it's constantly there. Um, I had some therapy, bereavement therapy. But um, I think because of the trauma, I've been referred to trauma therapy. Okay. So yes. I'm going to do trauma therapy because obviously I'm still quite traumatised. Yeah. And that's that. Um, sleep, 
is a golden gift. When I do get to sleep, I never want to get back up again. But my sleep is erratic. There's no, I haven't got a pattern. So I could be up till five o'clock in the morning. It's easy when you're off because then I can sleep till eight, nine o'clock. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But when you've got to get up for schools and stuff, it impacts me. It impacts my responses to people. It makes me snappy. It makes me irritable. And it makes me quite emotive. Yes. In, 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 in how I am. And I've done a lot of self-reflecting. So I'm looking at how my circumstances impact me and how my responses might impact somebody else. And then I'm thinking about the desired outcome. What is it that somebody does that's going to make me feel these particular emotions? Mm-hmm. What am I doing to make that person display those emotions? So that you keep that cycle of my behaviour is going to impact your responses yeah. and my response is going to impact your behaviour. So I keep that kind of thing going through my mind and try to adorn myself so that I can respond to you in an appropriate way so that your behaviour doesn't trigger any sort of negative reaction or thought or feeling in me wow i mean you you've already been on such a huge journey i think your 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 new journey now is is going to be the path to kind of yeah to the healing and i just think from someone that's had you know i've had therapy i've had um psychotherapy before because an incident that happened with me um probably about was it 2006 um, yeah, it was weird, like, 2000, it's like, I had a very traumatic experience in 2006 where I had, like, literally gunmen, three gunmen in bad clubs kicked down my front door with, with, you know, all had three guns, that, so there was that, you know, at the end of the year, then, then my cousin was murdered, no, my, I think my brother was robbed at knife point, Gosh. Um, and then my cousin was murdered, so in the space of, like, seven months, a lot of trauma kind of happened, so, um, you know yeah for someone who's gone through the whole therapy process you know it's um it's not a straightforward thing you kind of you're gonna have your moments where you think you're okay you know you might walk out of that session feeling okay but then it's like that evening or the following morning yeah. that's when those th- the yeah. things that you spoke about there'll be things that you might even deny that you feel because i did that a lot you know when i remember my therapist would say certain things to me and i'd be like <laughs> No, we talking about. She don't need to talk about. And I'd, you know, be on my way home, and I'd be like, "What's she talking about?" And then the next day, it dawns. It dawns. Yeah. You know, um. So yeah, just it's gonna be so hard. I mean, it's been hard already, but yeah. I think, you know, this is gonna be a real, um, a really, really big test for you. I think it's that though, isn't it? It's it's understanding that. The phrases we say, the words we say, things that we do, it is just cliche. It's cliche. Yeah. It's not real. Um, you know, it doesn't get better in time. It doesn't go away. Time doesn't fix everything. What happens is, is it's a pain that is ingrained. It becomes part of that gene pool yes. of you. You learn to live with it. You will have moments of great happiness and then it's going to drop into your spirit. It You don't necessarily cry every day, but you don't stop crying. Right, yeah. You won't stop thinking about them. You won't stop doing. It's not helpful to tell somebody, give it time, it's going to go away. It doesn't. doesn't yeah. Don't tell somebody, okay, you've got to get over it. They never will. Don't tell people what you think they want to they hear. Want to hear. Yeah. And sometimes just don't talk yeah. like be there and listen so, so don't tell me what i should feel what i should be doing or who i should be doing it for mm. just find out where i'm at now you know 
Don't ask me, are you okay? Because you know I'm not going to be okay. Yeah. So the thing is, is where are you now? What are you feeling? What are you going through? What are you experiencing? Is there anything in that that I can do to help? Mm. Because a lot of the time you can't help me because there are no words that can comfort you when you lose a loved one be it your child, your mother, whatever. When you're going through that grief, whether you like it or not, there is no respite on that journey. You have to go through that journey in the stages that you've got to go through that journey. And you have to feel the emotions that you have to feel. Even your therapy would tell you that you have to feel it all. Yeah. And then you get the therapy afterwards. But you have to, certain things you have to feel because you've got to learn your coping strategies of how you are going to live with this because this is now who you are. Yeah, mm-hmm. you never stop becoming the mother of the dead child. Yeah. You have all that, that love you have for that child doesn't stop growing because they're now dead. Mm-hmm. So what happens is the weight of that love crushes you and suffocates you because it's got nowhere to go. Mm-hmm. You need to know how to channel that. You have to find an outlet for you. So my outlet for that love was my writing. So you said to me at the beginning that if you want to know the full transcript of grief, read that book. Yeah. The reason being is, is because grief and love are conjoined. Mm-hmm. Without one, the other doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. What you read is grief and pain. What I'm writing is the love I have for my child mm-hmm. and the way that that love that has no home to go to anymore is impacting my life. Do you understand what I mean? Yeah. And that is it. Mm-hmm. So the intensity to that relationship is how much so you can hear somebody's died and oh no I'm so sorry to hear that because you've lost somebody but when you want to feel what you think that person's feeling you think of the loved one you think of your love and then you kind of understand a little bit Mm -hmm. to what they're going through but your story and my story will always be different our impact is always going to be different Mm -hmm. yeah and that's the thing so sometimes when I write my blog posts some people say to me it's too difficult for them to read so they start they can't read it what it is is you read sadness I'm only writing love my love has no home, so it impacts me in this way. Mm-hmm. So I write my love out because that's my outlet. But when you read it, you can hear that sadness because it's one emotion. Grief and love is one emotion. It's just a flip coin. I mean, on that note, um, you're a very good writer. <laughs> Thank you. No, honestly, you're you're so, especially when you're talking about your emotions, you're so descriptive. I think as the reader, you... I don't know how you could you can actually disconnect. I don't know if maybe it's because I'm a mother now. Because um, I think sometimes prior to having children, you, you you hear things that happen to children when they, they be stabbed. And, you know, it's like, oh, my God, that's so bad. But you don't really feel, feel it really, you know. Yeah. Even, you know, even with, with my cousin dying, like, I, I felt it. But now... I think now that I have a child, that that feeling is now is even more so intensified because mm. now I know what it actually would. God, I remember when I was reading your book. I remember I had my daughter on my lap and I was just holding was just her, holding her. Honestly, oh, and, you know, I think losing a child has to, you know, losing anyone is is terrible. But I think losing a child that hasn't even touched on their potential, you know is harrowing it's it's crushing you know it's all the things that you know you have um you know written in your book um so let's see what time is 22 okay all right so we're going to wind down now um 
is there any okay so before we start again is there anything you want to cover in like the last like five minutes anything that you want to say that maybe you haven't got around to saying that you'd like to say um i think it would be to the mothers and the family members that have had to endure the loss of a loved one of a child through stabbing or shootings and I think it's just just to simply say that say it all the time but it really is okay to not be okay and sometimes we sit there because we have a specific individual specific group of people that we feel we need to get that comfort from but sometimes they're just as broken and they need that healing from that same tragedy as you do and because they've not yet been able to formalize those words to comfort themselves they're not able to comfort you and that as well is okay and don't allow their pain to sort of become a platform to resentment because they just don't understand. So when they're telling you don't talk about it, it's not because they don't care about you or they're not interested in what you're going through, is they don't know yet how to manage their pain. They're not living with their pain yet. They're still in that place of denial and they haven't reached that point yet where, they're, where they are ready to accept that tragedy. So they're still in that surreal moment and then they make you the blind spot, but really it's symbolic to just hiding their pain and their grief but do find somebody so you may have a friend you may your doctor that stranger anybody there may be somebody and there always is somebody to be honest that is going to be there that's willing to help you that's willing to talk to you that's willing to feel and don't put a time on it because there is no time there is no time um I'm a year and two months in and believe me I feel exactly the same as I did Friday the 20th of October 2017 when I actually held my son in my arms and had my head on his chest listening to his heartbeats fading away like it doesn't get better just like that you will go through journeys you are going to learn to smile again you are going to learn to walk again but do it in your way in your pace and make sure you heal and be real with your healing and if you have children let your children see you grieving because that opens up a healthy pathway for them to also grieve. Yes, and you teach them you teach them that it is okay to cry. It's okay to talk. It's okay to be real because until you are real, as Dion said before, you can't heal. Okay, so we're going to wrap up the discussion now um, and only because I've got to do the nursery run because I feel like, honestly, I don't feel like this is long enough. Bless you. Honestly, I don't think it is. I think I could have quite easily sat here for another hour, at least. Um, but Rachel, thank you so much for giving up your time to sit down and, and speak with me this morning. Okay, so Rachel, um, where can um, the listeners find your book? Okay, so the book is currently um, published on Amazon. So you can go on Amazon and I think you've got a link for Amazon.com for American viewers. Mm -hmm. And then you've got the UK Amazon that you can buy the book in paperback or Kindle version. Okay. Um, And you also have a blog, don't you? So where can we we find your blog? The blog is on WordPress.com and it's The Rise of the Phoenix. Okay. And... um, if anyone wanted to maybe contact you, what are your, can people contact you on your social media? Yep, they can reach out to me on social media. We've got a YouTube channel, 
um, which is Entwined TV. And that sort of brings together all the work that we're currently doing. So it's the Rosie's Convo radio show. Um, The blog is going to be formatted in an audio version so that it meets my young audience Mm -hmm. as well because I've got a lot of young people that follow and they don't really like reading as much. So it's putting a blog out in an audio version and also it will show like our events and certain projects and workshops that we're doing as well as interviews and things like that working towards the cause. Um, The Facebook page is Phoenix Rising on Facebook. And we've also got a Facebook page focusing on solutions to tackle knife crime. Instagram, it's riseofthephoenix.1. LinkedIn is Phoenix Rise. Instagram is riseofthephoenix.1. YouTube's Entwine TV. Pinterest is Phoenix. Then we've got Tumba, the Rise of the Phoenix. Twitter, Phoenix Rise 5. And the blog is Phoenix. 9944482.35.blog on wordpress.com. <laughs> okay, so um so guys, if you are affected by anything that we have spoken about today, um just head over to our resources page where we've got loads of um details of support services um for bereavement um and grief counseling um but I'll also um put up some other um, relevant um, support links and services on there so again Rachel thank you thank you so much for um, you know being very raw and open and honest about your pain and your feelings um, I'd absolutely recommend this book um, so let's please support you know what Rachel was trying to do because you know she's doing a lot of work in the community and always kind of has done anyway so um, please support her purchase the book it's also available on kindle as well um so you can have it on your phone or your tablet so um but yes yeah, so thank you and um you know guys take care of yourselves uh, as always and um we will reconvene next week you can hit us up on the socials lovelaidbear.com um twitter instagram and facebook we also have a discussion group on there too um so have a good week guys and i love you and yeah take care thank you thank you Rachel. thank you love laid, laid.